Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today, I have a wonderful interview with Josh Tutt. He is running for the Texas State Senate District 18. This is your first run, isn't it, Josh? Yes, Terry, it is. It's my first time running for office. Yeah, and I'm really excited to discuss with him um, his story, his perspectives, why he's running for office, as well as what he hopes all of us who are deconstructing will do in order to help the political climate here in the United States and in our various states and counties and cities. Um, Josh also comes from a high demand religious background, and he's going to talk about how that has influenced his life as well as his coming out story, being LGBTQ, running in Texas, what that's like, some of the challenges that he faces, and why he feels so passionately about the work that he does. So welcome to the show, Josh. Well, thank you. So just a heads up, there is a trigger warning for this podcast. We will be talking a little bit about suicidal ideation. So if that is something that is highly sensitive for you, please either skip the podcast or give yourself permission to turn it off if it becomes too much. But we will be talking about some suicidal ideation with regards to coming out as LGBTQIA. And I wanted to let you guys know that before we dive in a little bit further. I think one of the things that really fascinates me about you, so first of all, we're connected your campaign manager is my virtual assistant, and we both love Ashley, who is listening in the background. So, so excited that she's here as well, and so grateful for her work for both of us and how she's allowed us to show up, I think, so confidently and um, to be able to do the work that we both feel called to do. But today, I think one of the big things we're going to be talking about is how sometimes showing up in these ways can feel very scary. And a lot of our listeners, I think, are going to relate with your journey of figuring out what you want to do in the world, confronting that fear of, you know, what might people think, especially like my family or my friends who are still believing churchgoers, and how do I move past that and show up in the world? So before we get started, I would love it if you would just kind of tell us about your story and how you arrived at this place so that we can kind of get to know who you are. So I guess uh, in, in true uh, politician fashion, let's start with the bottom line up front here, is that um, the key part of my journey that got me from uh, growing up in a you know, conservative uh, evangelical Christian household to running for office to be the first openly gay state senator in state history is that I realized that I was going to have to live with myself a lot longer than I was going to have to live with anyone else. You know, my parents uh, and the things that they taught me uh, or anyone else that I would meet further along in life. I was going to have to find a way to live with myself. Um, so to, to start a little bit further back. Um, so as I mentioned, I did uh, you know, grow up in a conservative household. 
uh, the first time that I went to vote, uh, my mom had strong opinions about how I should uh, be voting for. wasn't forced or compelled, of course, but uh, the recommendations are very clear. Um, we uh, went for most of my childhood to a, an Assemblies of God church, um, and, and that came with all the, the, the fixed things of uh, folks uh, speaking in tongues and uh, you know, being prophesied over and being baptized in the spirit and things of that nature. Um, and I grew up with, uh, you know, books on the shelf, uh, that, uh, it took a very, very literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, I read the entire left behind series for fun. Um, I, you know, we had books talking about, uh, you know, evolution and vaccines and, uh, and, uh, discrediting them from a very literal creationist standpoint. Um, and this very literal interpretation uh, you know, the Bible and religion was was what I grew up in. Whether that was the intent or not, um, I'll leave that up to my parents to, to to say. But that's that's what I received, and that's what that that's the path that I found myself on when I first started to think about who am I, who am I becoming, what am I going to do with my life. Um, the part I hadn't mentioned yet is that I was also homeschooled uh, from uh, seventh grade forward. Uh, so after having a foundation in public school, uh, we began homeschooling. And so being homeschooled meant that we had a lot of, uh, you know, self-learning and, and learning how to learn, uh, which was important. A uh, bit of a double-edged sword there, um, but it, it did have the benefit of, you know, teaching myself to teach myself, which was invaluable for what came next. Um, shortly after I turned 18, uh, I very suddenly realized, uh, you know, that I was gay one day uh, from Wikipedia of all sources. Um, I had never experienced... Um, you know, a crush or attraction or anything like that. Uh, and, and maybe it was because I was homeschooled and didn't have, uh, you know, the, the kind of friend group that you just sort of figure these things out or you have peers talking about such things or going through these things. I'm not really sure uh, why it took so long. Um, my idea is that it took so long because I never had it modeled for me. I never saw um, that there were any other options. I didn't know that there were uh, alternatives, basically. My idea of uh, what being gay meant was uh, you know, the guy that I'd seen who worked at the counter Claire's with one earring in uh, and a, uh, a list um, and all the power uh, now, uh, you know, to the, the femme queens of the world. But that didn't resonate with me at the time. I had no connection to it. Um, and, you know, the other stories that I heard were, you know, things on the news uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, kids on the school bus in third grade using gay as a slur. Uh, and all these things that I just kind of generally picked up this idea of, of what gay was. And that had, you know, of course, that had nothing to do with me. Um, and so uh, when I finally realized that I was gay, I had a bit of an identity crisis. Um, it, very suddenly, uh, I was, uh, you know, the abomination written about in these verses. I was, uh, you know, on these lists of sinners meant for the wake of fire. Um, and that was difficult. <laughs> To say the least, uh, it was very difficult to reconcile these things. Uh, there was a period of time, you know, I was in denial. I, had, um, you know, I'd already been uh, pretty involved and uh, engaged in apologetics websites, learning how to counter arguments from uh, non-Christian sources, and so I already knew I had a head start on how to combat my own homosexuality and how to counter that all that logic. So I found myself on places. Uh, like Exodus International's web forums, uh, where they talked about people experiencing same-sex uh, attraction as an affliction, as something to deal with and get over. 
as a, uh, you know, as a sickness. Um, and, and that was not healing. That was not helpful. Uh, realizing that the whole rest of my future was going to be plagued by this thing that was just innately wrong and that I would have to, you know, shove it in a box, deny it, ignore it, uh, cover it, um, for the rest of my life was not compatible. Identity crisis continues. Um, I began to, to pray that, uh, you know, God would, like that my car would careen over the side of a bridge and a freak accident, you know, lightning would strike or something. Cause of course, you know, suicide's also a sin. And I want, didn't want to consider that option. I didn't want to actually go through it that, but I didn't want to ever do something. So as it was written, so heinous and separate me forever from the love of God. And that was, and, and it was this point when I was struggling, trying to figure out how do I reconcile all these things? Like that doesn't sound right. That's not, surely that's not right. I must be misunderstanding it. And, and it was when I realized that I have to live with myself longer than I have to live with anybody else. And, um, and this isn't conducive to me living with myself. Yeah. Um, it, that's when I finally started to kind of break free. That's, that was the spark that started my deconstruction process uh, was um, realizing that I've clearly picked up things along the way. Uh, the, the structure of the house, you know, my, my worldview uh, had flaws in, in the very foundation and that I had to I'm just going to have to rebuild from scratch. And the difficult part was figuring out which parts we are going to keep and which points um, needed to go. And having to figure that out a lot on my own as a, as a young man, um, you know, right on the cusp of even for college, because of course there were some good things to keep. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I've been compelled to run for office to get involved, help make change and, you know, in the world around me is one of the things that, you know, my, my dad taught me. Uh, I forget uh, which which book the Bible comes from, but it's that verse about do not withhold power. Sorry, let me correct that. It's that verse about do not withhold good from others when you have the power to act. Mm. Uh, and that's the thing that's that's kept me going. That's been that driving force that makes it so I can't very easily sit and rest easy when I know that there's something I can do to help somebody else. Um, and and so that's that's a good thing that I've elected to keep. And and then there's plenty of things that I've decided to not from that process as well. Um, and, and, you know, such as any need or compulsion for, you know, organized uh, religion, as we often see it today. Um, it's something that's hurt me in the past, and I'm not too keen on giving people the power to hurt me with that again. So um, I think that a little bit explains, you know, how growing up uh, and realizing that I was gay kind of broke my worldview shattered it, uh, quite frankly, um, in a way that made the path forward for me to, to do things like to get involved, to volunteer, to run for office, because I realized that I was going to have to, you know, be the captain of my own spaceship. I was going to have to uh, choose my own path forward and what gives me peace with myself. Yeah. And I guess my question for you, because I know a lot of people listening are going to have this question for you is how did you discern what you were going to keep and how did you discern what you were going to prune away and what you were going to discard? There was a lot of sitting with things kind of slowly over time, realizing what was, you know, what was fruitful, what helped grow uh, my relationships, what made me feel, uh, have peace with myself, what, um, you know, created tension between me and other people. Um, you know, what were the things that 
I, I learned, and it was a scary thing at first, but I learned that there is such a thing as morality and a code of ethics outside of uh, religion. Uh, and so I'd been in Boy Scouts um, and I'd been, uh, you know, uh, when I went to college, I was a cadet. And so we had our own code of ethics, our own oaths that we committed to. And I was like, what are these things that uh, we, that these words that we try to live by? What, what are the commonalities, the, the common threads here? Um, I mentioned to you previously, Carrie, about uh, you know a book that was really instrumental to me was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, and realizing things like uh, their, their phrase, sharpen your saw, was the first time I'd ever heard this concept of self-care and improving yourself because that enables you to reach your goals and help other people. Um, and doing things like listen more than you speak, to hear people with the intent to listen, not just to, to formulate my own response and speak over them or back at them. Um, and, and so those very early ideas uh, helped me to, to to guide me to what was useful to keep and, and what wasn't. Yeah. You said that you realized that morality and ethics, that they existed outside of religion and that you had seen that in Boy Scouts and you had seen it in your cadets group. And how did you decide what your morality or your ethics were? You said you had read the seven habits of highly effective people, but like, how did you sift through that and figure out like, what are the values that guide me and how do I want to live? Well, and another thing that I want to mention was that having realized that, you know, ethics, et cetera, uh, exists outside of religion doesn't mean that all of my ethics, et cetera, do exist outside of religion. I, that doesn't mean it wasn't a uh, binary one or the other uh, or to the exclusion of the other. Um, and, and so trying to find, you know, what, what were the good parts that, what were the things that helped me to be there to take care of other people? What, what helped me to grow, uh, you know, as a person to have, you know, fulfillment, to feel like I, you know, that I've done right. What, you know, what, what are the things that, you know, the choice I make that mitigate, you know, me having guilt or the likely of having to hide or, uh, or to, to feel shame that I created for myself later. Um, maybe one of the most, um, specific guiding points is I had an internship once where uh, one of my uh, you know bosses gave me the phrase to keep with me for life was to you know that uh, just like how electricity follows the path of least resistance uh, we have to follow the path of least regrets mm. and that's a guiding principle that I've held on to for a while it's like you know when I when I make this choice you know I'm going to say something here is it entirely true maybe the important question to consider in that moment is am I going to regret this uh, is that something that I can live with? Is it something that I can I can stand by later? How am I going to feel? You know, is this the best choice I have this time? Kind of keep that 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 future minded uh, perspective of you know how how is this going to sit with me? Am I going to be able to live with myself? Will I be proud of my own actions? Uh, will I be content? Will I think that I you know did what I could? Yeah, well, and I think that that's such a great guiding principle because really what you're doing is you are checking in with kind of your inner knowing and you're allowing yourself to check in with yourself first. And before you speak, before you act, before you do those things, you're checking in and asking, is this something I would be proud of? Is this something that I can stand by? Is this something I can live with? Because like you said, you're going to live with yourself a lot longer than you live with anyone else. Checking in and seeing is this something I'm going to regret later? You know, is it something I'm going to revisit in my mind and wish that I had done differently? 
And while we do evolve and we do change, being able to check in in that way allows us to know that like in this moment, I'm showing up as my best self, as, as the self that I want to be. And I might change and I might grow and I might evolve, but I can be proud of knowing that I'm showing up in a way that I would be proud of in this moment. And because of that, I'll feel proud of it later on as well. With that, um, and, and I think that pairs well with something that I'd uh, been told by a therapist once in college. Is I'd been you know, talking about you know, some of my troubles in childhood uh, and all that, and I'd apparently been pretty hard on myself. But she stopped me to say that we don't have to blame you know, eight-year-old Josh for the things that he did when he was grieving. Mm-hmm. And so being able to kind of give forgiveness to my past self while looking out for my future self by seeking this path of least regrets, these are things that kind of helped me to, to, to try to have a, I, I almost want to say a peaceful journey, but sometimes it's a little bit uh, rugged and there's a lot of trailblazing going on, but um, it's, you know, a, a journey that I can look back on and think that's the, uh, it's the right trail for me. Absolutely. Well, and I feel like when we forgive our younger selves, we give ourselves in the present freedom to try things on, to figure things out and to blaze those trails. Because when we can't forgive our past self for doing the best they could with the tools they had and the knowledge they had, then it's almost like we bind ourselves here in the present because we don't want our future self to feel that way about our present self. And so when we forgive our, our past self for doing the best they could and understanding that their best is actually what led us to this present place, the lessons they learned from their mistakes are what brought us here to the present, I think really frees us up in the present to be able to do our best, to make choices that we believe will bring us the least amount of regrets, to make mistakes because we're going to, and to learn from those mistakes and, and move forward and to continue to evolve and to grow into the person we're going to be in the future. So I love that you brought up forgiving your eight-year-old self because I think a lot of us get caught up on that step. We can't forgive the person we were when we were a child or the person we were when we were high, in high-demand religion or you know the person we were even last year sometimes. We can't forgive that person and we kind of trap ourselves in the present from being able to really expand and to live fully from that inner wisdom and from that place of no regrets, because we're so afraid that our future self will judge our present self. Yeah. And I guess that leads itself to a third mantra that I hadn't connected to this progression before. Uh, There's this book uh, that I like a lot uh, by Brandon Sanderson. And and one of the characters mentions that, um, you know, asks another, uh, what is the most important step a man can take? It's always the next step, isn't it? Um, mm. And that it's not the first step that you take. It's the next step. Um, and that in the present, if, if you kind of, if you have, if you give grace and forgiveness to your past self and you have kindness towards your future self by walking this path of least regrets, then the next step in the present is the one that you work on. And, and you, you've given yourself the space to, to really choose your next step because you're not bound by the path or, uh, and you've got a, a guiding point for the future. So I think that those all three fit together much more elegantly than I'd ever realized. So. Yeah, they go together really, really well. And I think 
And I think all of this are, these are all things we need to learn as we're deconstructing and learning to listen to our own authority instead of some authority outside of ourselves. So instead of listening to a religious authority or our parents that we were, you know, taught to regard as an authority for our adult life, there's a place for outside authority when we're children and we're learning and we're growing cognitively. But as we mature, we become our own authority and we have to learn to listen to that and to um, ask it questions like, will I regret this? Is this something that I can live with? We have to learn to forgive the past versions of ourselves for doing the best they could and allow who we are right now in the present to really focus on that next step. And it becomes a lot less overwhelming, I think, whenever we're just like, okay, what is the next step? Instead of what am I going to do with the rest of my life or who am I, who am I going to be when I'm 80? Um, really understanding like right now, all I have control over is that next step here in the present that will lead me to that next place in the future where it will be the present again. And I make that next step. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I imagine, and, and it, it has been for me in the past, it can be. Uh, overwhelming, looking into that future that's now undefined when it was scripted for you before, but now it's this big blank canvas, this deep space that you're venturing off into by yourself. Um, when you focus on the next step, it becomes a little bit more you know, manageable. It's uh, it's a smaller scope, and that's important for me. Um, realizing, uh, you know, coming out to myself, as, as any queer person knows, you, you you've got to come out to yourself, um, you know, really before you can truly come out to other people and to, to be yourself. Um, but so when I finally you know, came out to myself and started accepting that part about me, that breaking away from the, you know, the authority, uh, the mold that was set out for me, um, kind of set that, that pattern for defining my own self and, and that I wasn't going to fit into the pre-described path set for me. Um, and, and that's been really helpful along the way because uh, I may be running for office now, but for all of two years ago, I wasn't like super politically active. I was like an engaged voter. I, was, I helped folks get registered. And now it, it's been a huge progression, a, a lot of changes in just uh, in, in life that I've created, uh, redirecting what am I doing with my life um, that is all enabled by being able to you know, by those first steps breaking out of that mold and realizing that this doesn't serve me. Yeah. Uh, um, like I said earlier, uh, captain your own spaceship and, you know, set your own course, you know, even when, when, when you make a dramatic change and you know, things come up that way, you know, you, you still have that path of least regrets as your guiding star. Absolutely. Well, and I, I like this idea that as you take the next step, like the next one makes itself known to you because I often talk about our time in high demand religion as having a roadmap set out for us, right? Where they're like, you turn here, you do this, like, here's the end destination. And these are all the steps you take to get to this end destination. And now living from our own inner compass, it's more like, it's more like a GPS system in some ways in that, you know, the voice tells you like in two miles, take a right. And so it doesn't tell you all the steps that come after that. It just says in two miles, take a right. And so you take that right in two miles. And then once you've taken that step, it tells you what the next step is. And mm -hmm. I find that our life is that way a lot of times where 
we take that step and then the next step is revealed to us. We either learn that, hey, this doesn't quite fit me or this is close, but I need to make this little bit of a course correction. And sometimes we take the turn thinking that that's what the GPS said, like take a right, but we took the right that is, you know, we took exit A instead of exit B. You know how sometimes they do that? It's like exit 213A and then there's exit 213B. And so you take A instead of B and it's like, all right, you know, make a U-turn at the next, at the next available spot. And so you make that U-turn, you get back on the road, you take the right exit. And so I find that living by our own authority feels a little bit more like that. Not like I'm doing this, then I'm doing this and I'm doing this. It's more like, here's the next step. And then our inner GPS says, okay, great. Now here's the next step. And we kind of live our life that way. And it course corrects according to where the construction is and, you know, where the roads are closed and where the traffic is building up and we kind of move around and, and get to a destination that feels good for us in that way. As it works well with that analogy about when you take your exit and you got the right one, but suddenly you have a left exit about a hundred yards ahead and across four lanes of traffic. Dallas, I'm looking at you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's how it goes sometimes. The, yeah. the next step and it's not always, uh, you know, clear, as far ahead of time as we might want, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Dallas has crazy, crazy driving. The mix masters and everything, like getting in the right lane, making sure you're on the right highway. I remember being so stressed driving in Dallas as a teenager. It was. I remember my mom being stressed letting me go drive in Dallas as a teenager. So yeah, yeah. You get off on one, and you do have to go across four lanes of traffic and get off on another. And sometimes you miss your exit there's always a way back to where you were supposed to go, which kind of leads me to how did your journey and your internal GPS lead you into politics? And what are you hoping to accomplish in this space? So some of those guiding principles that, that I've used to kind of mark and, and define what is my path of least regrets um, are, are things like, uh, and I don't want to sound too like, hoity-toity about myself but it's you know things like compassion being kind to others uh, you know, empathy it's like can i can i being helpful uh, being courteous you know the rest of the the scout law you know like what, what can i do to help somebody else to uh you know to feed the hungry and to shelter the homeless and welcome the stranger what are those things that i can do to be there for somebody else you know to do it unto others as i i would hope that they would do for me uh mm-hmm. to to, to be there part of a you know bigger community. Sometimes the people we help are ourselves and sometimes it's our friend, singular even. Um, and sometimes we can do things that help uh, our whole community at once. Um, I decided to run for office when I woke up cold in my bed last February during the taxes blackout. Um, I was frustrated, I was mad, I was worried about uh, my, my immediate family. Thank goodness my mother-in-law has a wood-burning fireplace uh, we had a propane stove, so we were able to put together warm, uh, warm, a pot of warm food, carry it through the snow to her place to have a warm fire, and to, um, you know, we made it through that together. Um, but it was rough, and it didn't have to be that way. And I knew that. I knew that somebody had to do something about it. When I tried being just an informed voter, I was going to do my research and look up who the candidates were um, in the 2020 election. I saw that my elected officials were uncontested. I didn't have an opponent 
uh, running against them in the primary election or in the general election, meaning that they just got their seat back free. And if an election is when you're supposed to be able to use your voice, if it's a job performance uh, evaluation for our elected officials, when we get to tell them what we've thought about the job that they've done, we're denied all of that when nobody runs for office. Um, and, and that didn't sit right with me. So when I knew that somebody had to do something about it, but nobody had, I, I began to sit and wrestle with this idea that I am somebody and I can do something about this. Uh, there was a blank spot on the ballot waiting for somebody's name on it. And here was somebody sitting cold in his bed, you know, thinking that we should fix this. And I, and that was when I decided to run. When the power came back on, I Googled it. Um, I, you know, searched how to run for office in Texas, had a lot of conversations with, uh, you know, people who support me, uh, with Ashley, uh, in particular, she was one of the early voices as well, uh, got connected with groups like run for something, um, that helped to, uh, recruit and train, uh, young, diverse candidates running for local offices. Um, and, you know, between all these resources, the training I received and the support that I had, um, it went from this wild idea, uh, to uh, something actually happening, actually getting my name on on paper and, and on the ballot. So that was what, what got me decided to run. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that um, if I hadn't had that, that, that early principle of needing to be able to, to live with myself. And I feel like I'm being repetitive, but that's how slogans work, right? With that path of least regrets. Uh, because once I had realized that I could do something about this and I could give us a voice on our ballot that we've been denied before, if I didn't do it and I knew that nobody else was going to, I would have regretted it. I, I knew that that was just something that would have weighed on me because as my dad had taught me when I was younger, one of those good things I kept for my religious upbringing was do not withhold good from others when you have the power to act. And, and that's a heavy burden. It's almost a curse to put on a child, right? But it, in a way, it, it's, it still helps to, to compel me to, to help people around me when I can. I knew this was one way that I could help. Yeah. Uh, there's so many ways to help, even in the world of politics. Um, but this was one place where there was a need for somebody and an opportunity. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's something magical that happens when we recognize a need and we feel that pull inside of us of, I could meet this need. This yeah. is something I could do because there are people listening. He's not saying every single person has to decide that they're going to run for office or put their name on the ballot. But if you feel that pull inside of you, like you said, when you tapped into the path of least regrets, you knew that if you didn't put your name on the ballot, there would be a part of you that would regret that. And that's checking in with your inner knowing and checking in with that, that inner GPS system. And recognizing there's a need here. I have an interest in filling that need. This is something I could do. And if I don't do it, I think I'll regret it. And that kind of guides our choices and how we show up in the world. I felt the same way with the podcast. I didn't see resources that I wanted for deconstructing as we were running, you know, support groups for people who had left Mormonism here in the local area. My husband and I recognized we had a therapy background that was helping guide our deconstruction and helping us do it in a, a much like in a healthier, like more centered way. And we were turning less to numbing mechanisms. And so I felt that I had an obligation to share what I knew. 
And I was scared and I was worried about what my mom would think and worried about what my friends would think. And yet I knew if I didn't do it, I would regret it. And it sounds like that was that same sort of feeling inside of you for running for office, this idea of this is a need. I have the skills and the tools, or at least the ability to learn the skills and the tools to meet that need. And if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it. It's going to be something I'm thinking about years from now. Why didn't I do that? And there were a couple things about that. There's, there's so many other ways to, you know, additional ways to get involved as well. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be um, uh, separate. They can be additive, combined, overlap, and all that. Um, but there was just one way where I saw that opportunity. Early on, I, I rationalized it to myself. It's like, well, nobody did it last time. And I feel like I could do better than nobody. Um, was that it? It, it kind of freed up that those inhibitions that whether I was qualified or good enough. Um, and it's like the company, I didn't have anyone to compare myself to because nobody else was going to try to do the task. And I thought that trying to step up and to be there uh, and, and to, to fill that role for my neighbors was something that, that I could do. Um, we couldn't sit around and wait for somebody who was qualified, who was, uh, you know, the best fit, who was made for it. Um, because sometimes we discredit ourselves and we are in fact the ones who can wait for it. You know? Yeah. Well, and what does made for it mean other than we have the ability to learn the skills and tools and we've done it for enough time that we've learned how to do it. Exactly. That's really what made for it means. Mm-hmm. When I was a, a cadet in college, uh, I participated in the drill team. Um, I had never done uh, this sort of uh, drill performance before. I was part of the color guard. Um, and we, we practiced a lot rigorously for several weeks. Uh, we only had several weeks, though, mind you. Um, and I distinctly remember when we stepped out on the uh, performance field to actually give our uh, our drill performance for the contest. Uh, I remember my, my body going through the mo- motions via muscle memory, doing it exactly as we'd rehearsed so many times before. But in my head, I'm sitting here thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. And we, our team won, we were national champions. I quite clearly did know what I was doing. Um, And that has kind of stuck with me too, as just an example of how it's like, sometimes we hold ourselves back or sometimes we might, the confidence doesn't always come first. Mm -mm. So uh, that was a a real important thing for me to realize too, was that, you know, the, 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 the lineup here that I don't know how to do that um, isn't always correct. So yeah, and be able to learn something really intense really quickly was also something I learned from that experience. Yeah. Well, and I think you're absolutely right that the confidence doesn't always come first. I would say most of the time the confidence come doesn't come first. The confidence comes from competence. The the confidence comes from taking those steps, learning as you go, and gaining the skills. And then you feel confident because you know how to do it. And, and I guess it plays into the overall analogy real well, because just like with the drill performance, it was about taking the next best step uh, each time. So uh, I, you'd mentioned something about being uh, you know, worried what your parents might think when you started your podcast. Um, and that was something else that I think that um, I can give credit to my coming out process for was having to break free, you know, for my own survival, not to be overly traumatic about it, but it was like I had to you know, to, to get to a place where I stopped praying for an, an accidental, uh, you know, death to occur to, you know, to a place where I could have peace living with myself 
um, I, I had to break free from that notion of worrying about what my parents are going to think and actually force myself to stop caring what uh, others thought about the choices I was making and how I lived with myself. And that was real rough uh, growing up with my relationship with my mom because that was a period uh, that, that she definitely looks back on as intense rebellion, but it was it was trying to separate myself from that need for approval in order to in order to get my own approval, if that makes sense. I, I had to start even smaller at being okay with myself and not letting an external anyone have that deciding power. It was not easy, but no, especially when we live in a society that I think tells us that it's important that we have our parents' approval and that it's actually our job to make our parents feel proud of themselves as parents and of us as kids. I think it is revolutionary almost to decide that actually, no, I'm going to validate myself. And then any validation that comes on top of that is icing on the cake, but it's not my primary source of validation. And I love that you recognize that it was a difficult journey and it didn't start with you didn't just decide one day, I'm going to accept myself and validate myself. It started more with, I'm going to acknowledge what I need, and then I'm going to provide for those needs, and I'm going to check in with myself, and I'm going to get acquainted with myself. And it was kind of building a relationship for the first time in some ways with yourself. It's just like any other relationship that we build. It's not like we meet a person and suddenly we're the best of friends and we do everything together and we just totally get each other. Those things grow over time. And it's the same with our relationship with ourselves. Exactly. Funnily enough, that seven habits book I mentioned earlier uh, uses the same analogy, talks about relationships, I think counts and that you've got to make these little deposits over time um, that, you know, to add up. Um, And that was definitely something that, you know, my my own account had been well overdrawn. I did not know how to be kind to myself. And Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like I sat down, like, how will I learn to be kind to myself? It was just, you know, it started out with, you know, how maybe those very, very first steps weren't so clear. It was just a recognition that, you know, something that I've picked up along the way, some part of this construction is not, is not structurally sound. Mm -hmm. Um, Start from there. So. Yeah. Giving yourself permission to question the way things have always been done. Yeah. And I think for many of us, um, allowing ourselves just to get curious with those parts of ourselves, like, why are they here? What are they trying to protect? What are they trying to do? Are they serving me anymore? Maybe at one point, this was the best way to protect myself and the best way to care for myself, but maybe it's outdated. Maybe it's not serving me anymore. And what could I put in its place that would serve me better? I love that. Like, and I love how. It wasn't like you write a book that was like, this is what you do. And then this is what you do. And then this is what you do. You just kind of, like you said, sat with yourself at the very beginning of the podcast. You said you sat with yourself. And I think there's something so powerful about sitting and being quiet with ourselves and just listening to what's going on inside and getting curious with it and kind of following the cues of where do we go next? What's that next best step? In, in the world of politics, I've been coached that I should be prepared to help people. Uh, to answer the question, where do you go to church, especially run for office in rural Texas? And my answer to that has always been uh, Lake Somerville State Park. You know, getting out to the quiet places where just me and the wind in the trees, and maybe if you're lucky, there's a bird or a deer nearby, kind of thing, you know, and that, that quiet 
mess. Yeah. It's really important for me to be able to just to just to sit with myself with all of it. Yeah. I think there's something deeply spiritual and connective about being in the quiet with ourselves, whether that's happening, you know, alone in our bedroom or out in nature or at yoga class. I've had some clients say that they found themselves while, you know, doing downward dog. Um, whatever it is, like having quiet space where the world isn't swirling in our heads and we're not like caught up in our to-do list and we're not caught up in the go, 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 the busy of life to just sit and be and allow ourselves to hear what's going on on the inside. I think so often we stay so busy so that we can stay disconnected from what our inner wisdom is, has been telling us for years, screaming at us for years because we won't sit quietly with it and listen. Another thing I'd, I'd love to mention if I can um, is one thing about um, suddenly realizing that you're in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, it, it, it soon involves realizing that you don't know anything about, you know, that you, you may not know anybody who else is in the community. So you might not have any role models or, or mentors or elders. Uh, you might not know anything about the, uh, the history uh, of the, uh, the community movement that got us where we are today um, or you know the culture the customs the uh the landmarks and, and this that and the other there's a lot that you've missed i've a few times before described the, the queer community as a uh, as a family of strays and that you know once you kind of come out you're suddenly on your own very much and you've got to well if you're lucky um or if you put in sometimes a lot of effort you find each other um, and you've got to do that in order to, to find and to be part of that community. So, um, and, and that's been, that translates into the rest of life as well, you know, to realizing, hold on, I've, I've got a whole lot of more learning to do. What are the, what's the history that was not taught to me? Um, you know, what, what are the customs that um, I could, that I maybe misunderstood? Were the stereotypes that are bad, you know, that I have the wrong idea about? And, and, uh, that, that thrust into this new world with all kinds of, um, uh, required learning all of a sudden, um, I, I don't know that all queer folks who, who consider it required learning the same, um, cause we deserve to just kind of live our lives with peace sometimes. Not everybody mm-hmm. becomes an activist. Um, but I think it's important to, to learn our history about that. And I think it's similar to my it, it, it's parallel. It's not similar. It, it is entwined with my deconstructing process was learning about like, okay, well, what did I not learn about the history of my religion? What's the background? What are the counter arguments that that agnostics, uh, sorry, that apologetics website conveniently left out of the arguments? You know, what, what, what is the rest of the picture? Yeah. Well, and I think there is, I think there is a certain amount of responsibility that comes with you know, healing to do that, to not only deconstruct and to look into the history and the nuance of what parts of the story haven't been told to us, what haven't we been made aware of, um, how have we been indoctrinated instead of educated. And I find that we start often with religion when we're deconstructing high demand religion, 
but then it expands out into what have I been told about the LGBTQIA plus community? What have I been told about people who have more melanin in their skin, the, you know, BIPOC community? What have I been told about indigenous peoples? What have I been told about the history of the United States that edits and conveniently makes us look better? What has been propaganda and what has been the real history? And how, how do I dig in and inform myself so that I can live according to those values and those ethics that are inside of me um, that would help me make choices that don't bring me regret? So how do I take off, especially in the United States, religion and high demand religion in particular, like evangelical Christianity is woven throughout every facet of the United States. And so deconstructing religion also often means sitting with the stereotypes, sitting with um, the people we consider enemies or, you know, abroad and at home, allowing ourselves to just get curious about all of it and decide, you know, what is the history and what's been edited out? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to sound as if I was assigning that as like homework. I, I'm not trying to recreate a new box for people that they have to follow this path. But for, for myself and many that I've talked to learning uh, these things and, um, you know, expanding their worldview um, or, or and seeing other perspectives has been very healing. Yeah. It, it's part, a, a pathway to, to peace and to, um, and it and it's definitely, I, I would say it's one of the better paved uh, stretches of that path of least regrets. Absolutely. Well, and definitely, I, I don't want to assign homework either. And um, allowing us the opportunity to realize that it's okay to expand, it's okay to learn, it's okay to grow. It does, like, increase that circle of where we can live and that freedom to be ourselves, I think. I think it gives us a lot of empowerment in our lives when we give ourselves permission to get curious about everything, not just some things. It, it does. And that curiosity is, is really what pulled me into being active in politics more was because well, just like my, my personal uh, you know, beliefs and upbringing, uh, it uh, you know, tied so much into you know, the politics that I'd been taught. Like, well, I, I very quickly became much more progressive on the idea of uh, the LGBT community. I was one of them all of a sudden. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, you know, opened up my, my eyes there. And, you know, as I talk with folks listening to adjacent conversations, well, what else have I got to reconsider now? Or what else have I maybe not had the most open mind about? Uh, and some of that's been really hard. Um, so you know, there are some very deeply held political beliefs that are just nearly religious almost. Mm -hmm. um, that it's hard to, to to step away from to give myself the space to consider and to develop my own view because you don't want to I guess for a time there's accepting I, you know I'm not sure there may have been a time in my political journey where I kind of accepted the uh, you know the platform the policies of the rest of the groups like well if I agree with them on these 12 other things maybe I can agree with them on this one um, but then there's wanting to actually come to to terms with these these policies myself and like is this actually what i believe or am i just becoming part of the in crowd now mm. um, so sometimes that's that that's a hard part of the learning process it's like well do i trust my you know the, the, the these new allegiances to 
or have I you know, done the work myself as an individual? Do I need to do the work as an individual if I'm you know, having solidarity with this group? It's a bit of a toss up. Um, so I, I guess to give a specific example, um, y'all can probably imagine that my uh, parents uh, have a different view on, uh, on, on abortion access um, and what that means for bodily autonomy. Uh, in, in that uh, political uh, discussion. And it, it's been a lot of work and a lot of, you know, even after affirming for myself and being able to articulate why I support it, it was still difficult. First time I ever went to a you know, women's march event, I went to Planned Parenthood's table and everything. And I was just like, I knew, I knew that there would be you know, so many people, my parents included, who would not look kindly upon that to say least, who would not approve and that was difficult to do even after all this time and all this work mm-hmm. um, and, and and so I guess even after the confidence comes you know after I you know done my self-evaluation figured out why do I you know believe the way that I believe what do I want to support uh, where are my values and having the confidence to step out there was still you know I, I guess fear of shame I don't know that there was any shame in my experience for that, but the anticipation of it perhaps is a bit um, reactionary, a bit of a, you know, old, uh, old habit, you know, that, that is hard, you know? Absolutely. Well, even as we mature and grow and, and become more confident and we, we feel more rooted into who we truly are, there are still parts of ourselves from our childhood that live inside of us. The parts that want to please our parents, that want their validation, that don't want to disappoint them, that are used to doing whatever we have to do, whatever acrobatics we have to do to avoid shame. And when those parts come up, it doesn't mean that we're doing anything wrong. It just means that the old programming is popping up and is afraid of what might happen to us. And if we sit with that, even if we get quiet and sit with that and allow it to speak and recognize it's trying to protect us and just comfort it, let it know it's going to be okay. And that if, if we do end up, you know, feeling shamed by friends or family, that we know how to care for ourselves and how to work through that and that we're going to be okay in the end. You've given us so much to think about today. There are a lot of, I mean, I have a notebook here full of like written little lines of wisdom that I hope that the listeners picked up on and I really want to reiterate, as you've talked about your story, that really what people can do if they're listening, if they're seeing a need in their community, if they don't like what's going on in their school board, for instance, or in you know city council, or if they don't like what's going on at a county level or at a state level, that there's a lot to consider here to get involved. And you've talked about that fear that can that can happen of worrying about what other people might think and, you know, worrying about like, how do I know what the next step forward is? And I hope that people hear your story and I hope that they hear your process of working through that and holding yourself and allowing yourself to take those next steps and build the confidence to show up. And is there anything you would say to someone who wants to see change in the community who's maybe feeling like they're unqualified or they don't know what they would say, what would you say to somebody like that? My advice would be to take the next step, to, to show up to somewhere, somewhere that maybe is inside your comfort zone, maybe stretches a little bit, and then keep showing up, take the next step. 
Um, and that doesn't always mean that you're going to end up being the candidate yourself. Um, maybe it can mean getting involved in uh, your local school board or your PTA, um, you know, in your, your local schools where your kids go. Uh, it could mean just attending your city council meetings, knowing what's going on, getting engaged. Um, it could mean getting involved with a local group like a like a food pantry or uh, a small public library or doing a blood drive or something, something that helps address a need in your community. So when you get involved and you show up, when you hear what's happening and you've got your hands, you know, on, on the heart of the matter, you know, that might lead you to your next step. And your next step might be to run for office someday. Give yourself the permission to consider that option because I bet you are more qualified than you think that you are. You are good enough for something as big as this. Um, but it doesn't always have to be that big. There are, it takes a village, right? Um, you know, we, we, we change the world together and we need folks in all sorts of, in offices um, and, you know, doing all sorts of uh, organizing and community work and volunteering and, and just being there for each other. So I, I really think that that's, that's how we change things. We get to know our neighbors and we're there for each other. Absolutely. I would say listen to your interests as well. Like listen to where you're feeling pulled. And then, like you said, take that next best step to where that is pulling you. It's pulling you to the food pantry. Go there. If it's pulling you to the school district, go there. If it's pulling you, you know, to the city council, go there. Or if it's pulling you towards office, if you find yourself really upset with things that are happening, like power outages that are leaving people, you know, cold in their bed. Notice those things. Those are all hits of wisdom from our inner knowing that say, hey, this is something you could do. This is something that you're interested in. This might be a way for you to contribute. Sit with it and then take the next step that it tells you to take. Exactly. Um, The group I mentioned earlier, Run for Something, gave a lot of early support and training and resources for me. The very first question they ask anyone who reaches out uh, is, what are the problems in your community that you want to address? What are the, the issues that you want to solve or the struggles that you want to alleviate? And, and the next question is identify the offices uh, in our, our elected government that address those issues. But even that first question has got value on its own. Like identify the things that, that you want to help be part of a solution for. And running for office is one way to do something about it. it, it it's a it's, it's quite literally a lot of power to make change in our communities. Um, but there's so many ways to, to be part of that change, to, to show up and to keep showing up in, in a way that helps, you know, alleviate uh, some of these, these struggles and to just to be there for each other. Absolutely. Oh, there's so many good things here. I've written like notes for myself as well. I've been really concerned with like food insecurity. So I'm like, okay, I need to like look into that. And I mean, see if there's more that I can do in that regard um, on top of what our, what we're already doing. Is there a way I could make even more of a difference in the community? So you've inspired me to want to get out there and do more and to listen to my knowing even more. And thank you so much for taking time to be here. I know your schedule is busy especially as we're heading into elections. And if you have loved hearing from Josh Tutt, please go and visit his website, tuttfortexas.com. So T-U-T-T for Texas.com and four is spelled out F-O-R. So T-U-T-T-F-O-R-T-E-X-A-S.com. And that is also his handle on all the social media. Um, 
He's got TikToks that are fantastic. Instagram, Facebook, like all the places, Twitter, go to all the places, find him at Tut for Texas and start conversations with him as well. Find out if there's ways, you know, if, if you want to pick his brain, I'm sure. You know what? I'm talking for you. Are, is it okay for people to pick your brain? Oh, yeah. I have my, like, I have a cell phone number listed on my website. Just text me if you want to. I'm, I'm really happy to get in touch and to answer any questions, whether it's about my platform or my experience running for office or just whatever. Not enough people asking about my Dungeons and Dragon hobbies or things like that. I'd love to talk to people about these things. You know, it's uh, just the whole experience because it all goes together. You know, I, I really think it does bring. Um, and if I can make one ask of your audience, Carrie, is to make sure that you're registered to vote. Um, so we got big elections coming up all over in November and maybe sooner, depending on what state folks are in. Uh, get registered, get involved. It's, it's one way to use your voice to show up for each other. Absolutely. Well, and something that I learned actually very recently was that the local elections are so important, so much more important, maybe even than the presidential election is what is happening at a local basis. And so often we overlook that. So get informed on the issues that are happening, get informed with your candidates, go to their local rallies, get to know them as people and figure out what feels like the best fit for you and show up and vote for that person because that's where we that's where we make a lot of these changes is at the local level and at the state level um and that all kind of trickles up i think in some ways like it it all ties into what's happening at a national level so yeah exactly all right well thank you so much josh it's been a joy to have you on here and to get to know you. Ashley, I know we can't see you, but thank you for introducing us. And I will be telling all of my Texas friends and family about Josh and all of my friends that um, hopefully know people in his district, in District 18, because we need more people like him in office and sharing their ideas and their compassion and their concern for humanity. So thank you so much, Josh. and. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this podcast, and we will see you next Sunday. Thanks, Terry.